But wait, wait, what are we doing after? What do you mean, what are we doing after? The podcast? <laughs> I don't know. What are you doing we, later on? We can get a drink or something if you want to. I don't know. No. I mean, wh- are, we, doing, are, are we, gonna... we going into another segment at the end? Yeah, or? we can do as many segments as you want. Okay. We can have all the segments. <laughs> plan, man. We don't need a plan. Well, this is why we can't have nice things. Hello, and welcome to episode 34 of The Filibuster, where two political scientists try to make sense of our national politics. I am Larry Becker. With me, as always, is my great colleague, my even better friend, I learned from the last episode. Wow. My even better friend. I upgraded. Tyler Hughes. Tyler, how are you doing? Man, I feel like I leveled up a little bit. You've leveled That's up. That's great. Uh, I'm doing well. Larry, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It's almost Christmas time. It's yeah. It's Santa's working hard. I gather the, well, elves. the elves work. But Santa's not doing a lot of work, right? The elves are <laughs> well, doing all the making work. Making a list. There's some real problems with that marketplace. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's the holidays are coming up. It's finals for us. It's a very stressful time of year for pretty much everybody we're around on this on, at work. So um, yeah, do you have you have big plans for the holidays generally? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna take a little little vacay. Go to go to Vancouver, Canada. Ooh, may not come back. Nice. You know, yeah, I don't blame you. It's great. Thing you got goes. a birthday coming up, of course. I got a big one coming up. Our late December, baby. That's exciting. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. It's your. It's age is a state of mind. I'm going to go to Wyoming for Christmas, and I'm probably getting a fight with my racist stepdad. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Looking okay. forward to that. Okay. Well, maybe have him listen to the podcast first and. That way you That'll get really the riled, get him stuff all riled up yeah. before I even get there. That way he's just wearing the MAGA hat when I walk in the door. Yeah. Well, Tyler, it turns out there's a little something under the Christmas tree for Donald Trump, too. Wow. Yeah. What a segue. <laughs> yeah. uh, so this coming week is going to be an historic week. A big deal. People are going to write about it in history books. If you, you could go get the early copy of the history book now from like 10 years from now, and they'll be writing about this week. That made no sense, okay. what you just said. Okay. But I, it is going to be... Yeah, but you we, get my point. We're going to be voting. So therefore, it did make sense. Oh, uh, <laughs> man. We are, we're two minutes in, and the show's already crap. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's um, for... Um, we're going to be voting on impeachment, right? Like, that's, that's, Not me and you. But yeah, but like, as a country, know, as a yeah. nation, our republic is voting <clears throat> on impeachment, which is exciting. So, And only two presidents have ever... Been impeached. Never been impeached. We would have three if, if one hadn't resigned. Right? Sure. But the only two who have been impeached are Bill Clinton and Andrew Johnson. Of course. Both Democrats. So this is something new. We're going to get a Republican into the impeachment Potentially, yeah. Game. No, but you're right. This is, this is uh, it's a, it really is a milestone in American history. It's, 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 this is sort of like a big deal. Um, it, it, it already feels like the investigation's been going on for a while, though it really hasn't been. Um but uh, yeah, here we are. It's going to happen this week, and it looks like uh, the House is definitely going to vote to impeach. Absolutely, it's going to be a slow show. It's going to yeah. be it's going to be down party lines, but it's going to be a, a slam dunk, I think, for for Democrats. So let's talk about the House first. The House uh, is going to vote to impeach this week. Uh, it is going to be a party line vote for the most part, right? For the most part, the question is: Will it be perfectly a party line vote? We know as of today, at least one Democrat has come out and said that he is not going to vote to impeach, and that's Colin Peterson 
of Minnesota. We got to give a shout out to John Anderson. Who's right, he's constantly a big, big fan of the he, big. He is the big fan. friend of the podcast. He's the fan, yes. so he can fill us all. He can fill us in on the, the Twitterverse um, about Colin Peterson. This guy, yeah. yeah. Anyway, that guy is voting uh, no on impeachment. He's already come out and said he's voting no. Yeah, there may be others. Joe Cunningham has said he's on the fence. He, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Peterson has like the most. Trumpian, de- currently Democratic held seat. So, from a, an electoral standpoint, that makes sense. But you're also like a Democrat who was just, who was elected in 2018. So, I don't really understand that either. Well, and and certainly any Democrat, even if you're in a very Trumpy district, you know you've got to run for your party's nomination again. And there's going to be a lot of base Democrat Democrats in that district who are not happy about a no on impeachment. That's probably even true of Joe Cunningham in South Carolina. Um, we don't know who else might, there are some others who might vote no on impeachment. Um, Nancy Pelosi and the democratic leadership say they're not whipping the vote, which probably is true, but surely they know, you know, they've got the votes and we wouldn't be where we are. I mean, well, I mean, once the impeachment inquiry officially began, we we were set on this path. There was no other way right. place this was going to go. But I think especially given the way the two articles of impeachment were written, and the report that came with them and sort of how um, narrowly defined and, and tight, it's it's very clear that they wrote those with the mindset of like maintaining party unity and like not leaving it really much right, getting to doubt. the biggest coalition you could and possibly even with the hope of getting a Republican vote or two, which is which. So on the other end of it, it looks like that's there's not going to be a single Republican that's going to vote against vote for impeachment, I should say. Yeah, uh, maybe a former one former Republican, but not one current sitting Republican. Yeah, Justin Amash is definitely a yes on impeachment. Um, so let's talk about a couple of these people in the middle here. Like, I want to come back to Justin Amash in a second, but uh, Jeff Van Drew, who is, I don't like. By the way, did you know his first name is Jefferson Van Drew? Oh. Yeah. And he's switching to the Republican it's Party, which just makes shocker. A, yeah. a lot of sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's all fitting together. So Jefferson Van Drew. The fourth. Jefferson Van Jefferson, Drew. Jefferson, yes. Is going to vote uh, against the Articles of Impeachment. He represents a district in South Jersey that is that is pretty Trumpy-ish also. Um, but not as Trumpy as people like Colin Peterson or Joe Cunningham, I don't think. Yeah, like I mean, it, it, the, the party switch... I mean, it makes sense for him, I think, from an electoral standpoint, but it's absolutely bananas in in like 2019 that you can just say, like, wake up one day and be like, I'm a Republican now, like given the dynamics that we have between the two parties in this country. It's insane. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch of weird things about it. I mean, he apparently notified his staff. I don't know if you saw this, Tyler, but he apparently tried to reach out to some of the DCCC staff yeah. to ask to ask them, would they come along with him or still support him or something? It just do you do understand we're actually the group whose whole job is to defeat Republicans and help Democrats get right, elected? I don't. Well, it's just this guy... The, one thing that is that has astounded me throughout, I haven't watched a, all of the impeachment hearings. I haven't honestly watched a lot of the impeachment hearings, like sort of like live. But one thing that has astounded me throughout this process is that there are so many stupid people currently holding seats in the House of Representatives, like legitimately dumb idiots holding seats. And it it shouldn't surprise me, 
because of the propensity of white men to fail up in this country, but man, it has just been on display. A present company excluded. Of course. But I want to I want to pick up on this point you're making about the because I agree with you and I think it 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 links back in with our kind of political sciency take on things. The the notion that there would be any slash a lot of stupid people who got rose to the level of getting elected member of Congress, much less elected president of the United States, goes against a lot of political science orthodoxy, right? The idea is that people who get elected got elected because they're smart, they know what they're doing politically, they have a political you know, radar that is very highly attuned, and so on. And so it would suggest you can't be stupid because there's a whole bunch of other smart people trying to get these spots. Right. And there's a whole bunch of smart people like the Republican National Committee and the Democratic National Committee who are like grooming and vetting these candidates. And like the idea is there's there's like the stable and this like minor league system of like people you're bringing up and that you're the, so you're supposed to like separate the wheat from the chaff or whatever, right? Whatever the hell that metaphor is. You but should know that. I what? Yeah, because Kansas. Am I right? I assume you spent much of your youth just separating, separating wheat from wheat chaff. chaff. Yeah. that's all we do. Yeah. Most I spent many a day. Right, we're moving on. <laughs> um, so you would think like there's there's these institutions, these like private organizations whose job it is is to like weed out these dumb people and like pick the strongest person possible. And oh my goodness, when you have like- And then help them once they're along the way and groom them, you know, help them become even better candidates and- And then, so that not only do do these people <coughs> rise up to the, like become the cream at the top, right? Mm-hmm. Which again, certain gender and racial dynamics in this country, it kind of makes sense that these most of these idiots are a bunch of white men running around. But then they're the leaders of the, like on the Republican side of the impeachment inquiry. Like you have Devin Nunes, who I legitimately He's think- a dumb person. Is an idiot. Just He's a, a dumb just human. A really stupid person yeah and i don't say that lightly like, yeah I, and i don't mean just ignorant he's dumb yeah like <laughs> like i just I, I don't say that lightly like i'm making fun of him like he's legitimately stupid and yeah. he's he's the guy you pick like hey get out there buddy show show america what you got <laughs> yeah. i mean come on keep going keep yeah, going no you're good you're doing great buddy chase the ball yeah so, so. <laughs> no Devin, look out left field left yeah. field <laughs> right so so yeah, he. I think he deserves special mention as a complete moron. I mean, he's a real dumb person. I think a lot of a lot of people in the media and and Republicans were so excited to have Doug Collins of Georgia riding shotgun on the on the impeachment hearings for their side, right? In in the sense, like, okay, at least he's not a friggin' moron like Nunes, right? Nunes is just a dummy. Well, yeah, if you're playing the expectations game, like the Republicans just like set it up. You could have put like Brad Sherman, who's the world's most boring man, up there against yeah. Devin Nunes and he would have just killed him. Would have right. just completely <laughs> slaughtered him. Right. Uh so anyway, Jefferson Van Drew is um is making this switch in large part because not because he was worried about losing a general election, which he would have had a decent shot of winning perhaps as a Democrat in 2020, but because he, he basically came to the realization that he couldn't win a primary and was going to be primaried again by some kind of progressive Democrat in his South New Jersey district. So, so he's made this calculation, however 
kind of stupidly and awkwardly. Yeah, there's, some, and, there's some there's some wrong long division in that calculation. Yeah, and and the biggest wrong calculation, just to bring it back to impeachment here, is his his overall statements about this that he's voting no on impeachment because he just doesn't see this as rising to the level of an impeachable offense. He had some comment, I think, about he's concerned that we're weaponizing impeachment. That's like saying, I'm concerned that we're weaponizing guns or knives. They're weapons. Impeachment is a weapon. And in this case, it is absolutely appropriate to use that particular weapon. We'll get back to some of these arguments a little bit later, but I think sort of maybe springboarding off of some of these Democrats that look like they're going to vote no on impeachment, Democrats who are literally leaving the party over the impeachment uh, for electoral reasons. I want to talk about how how is it the Republican Party is so unified in, in the face of what seems like a pretty straightforward question of like, did the president do something beyond the scope of his office and undermined our, our, our democracy and was illegal? Did he do those things? The answer is, yeah, I did. Why is it that every single Republican is going to just give it a pass? Uh, I don't know. I think we've touched on one of the reasons, general stupidity among some of them. Um, so, you know, there's, there's the Nunez caucus, right? Which is just dummies. The Nunezians. But Will Hurd, right, is, is a good example of someone who we tend to think of as not stupid and actually as borderline thoughtful human being who... And he's retiring. So he has no electoral concerns at all. Well, except that the, the word on the street, I was just on the street and I heard, Uh Will Hurd is wow uh, <laughs> you see that what i that did was, there thank you we'll, we'll see you guys next year yes. that was great uh, uh will hurd is angling to uh run for president in 2024 he recently was uh getting ready to make some speeches in new hampshire so yeah he's doing that and i don't quite understand the logic of how this voting for you know all in what of world the Trump does will bullshit. hurd think he has the cachet to like win a presidential nomination uh, Donald Trump is currently the president. All right, that's fair. At, <laughs> All right, that's that's a fair point. But like, I'm like I could see Will Hurd winning a general election. What I can't see him winning is a Republican nomination. Right. So, but like, I, I'm going to give, I'm going to give a corrupt, amoral, power hungry, totalitarian sort of seeking president who is just crapping all over our constitution and our democratic ideals. I'm going to give him a pass because I think I'm going to run in 2024 and get crushed in a primary and And maybe write a book and have some speaking engagements. And by the way, I think that I'm smart enough to calculate what, you know, uh, Republican primary voters are going to be thinking in four years. Yeah, exactly. Because we, we really don't know. And Again, from the political science angle, we say, oh, these people are the cream of the crop in terms of their political radar. They're, they're plugged in. They know. They Again, don't know. We have a lot of, a lot of counterfactuals <clears throat> to that that have come up in the last couple of months. Right. And Will Hurd's another great example of, some, of, of somebody that, that does check a lot of the boxes, we think, but still is not acting in a way that we think they would normally act or even should act from a subjective sort of normative standpoint. But I think this gives the opportunity to talk about a few other things, right? So the electoral aspect is one thing, right? So... A lot of members of Congress are worried about getting reelected. David Mayhew, the whole sort of idea about Congress, which is really on display here, is that any elected official is a single-minded seeker of reelection. That's all you care about. 
you have other goals, but you have to be reelected in order to satisfy those other goals. There are plenty of people in Congress who are going to be safe and can seek other goals because they're probably going to get reelected. So, all right. But so a lot of people feel that, especially when 90% of self-identified Republicans in the nation think the president is doing a good job, even in the midst of all of this. So there's some of that pushback there. I, I also think I think there are people in the Republican Party, people in the House Republican Caucus or conference that that would vote in a vacuum, vote to impeach, that that think the president did something wrong and think the president should be reprimanded for it. I do think those people exist. I think there are more people on the other side who are either a sort of doing a political calculation and saying, if the president gets impeached, that's bad for the Republican Party. That's bad for me. Ultimately, I'm not, it's going to hurt the party. It's going to hurt me. We're not going to hold power reelection, blah, 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 blah. I think there's a lot of other people. I think Will Hurd's in this group too. Kevin McCarthy, idiots like Nunes and Jim Jordan, who have rationalized things in their brain to the point that they believe that these are not impeachable offenses. They believe the arguments they're making, that there's no smoking gun, that this is not impeachable, that there's no hard evidence, that the president asked for something, but because he didn't get the other thing in return, then it's not bribery. It's just attempted bribery. And they, I think they legitimately believe those things. Okay, so to get to that legitimate belief, you've got to get there one of two ways. One is the Nunez path. You're a moron. You're an idiot. Okay, or number two motivated reasoning right. so explain to us that well, motivated path. reasoning is just it, 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 we all engage in this all the time and maybe we're engaging in a little bit of this ourselves no. but you <laughs> you rationalize you reason um an explanation in your brain that fits a sort of a predetermined end that you've already decided and often that predetermined end is subconscious like you're not like you're not sitting there and being like you know what i really like the president so i'm going to sit here i'm going to sit down and i'm going to formulate an argument that exonerates the president Instead, it's this sort of unconscious um, uh, uh, reasoning in our brain that um, allows us to do some mental gymnastics and reach a point that makes sense in our heads uh, of this preconceived notion of how the world works. Because cognitively, our, it, our brains are really bad at handling information that messes with how we see the world. So we, our brains work really hard to make sense of the world in a way that puts us at cognitive ease. And you can imagine that given the stakes that are uh, at risk here, given the sense of identity that have been built around the parties, the sense of identity that exists with a lot of these people in Congress that um, uh, also identify with Trump in certain ways and identify with their voters is is going to cloud any kind of evidence that comes your way. And you're going to you're going to make sense of it. So the way you're describing this, it sounds a little bit like you're under a spell or a hypnotic. No, it's it's. Well, maybe I, I don't. It's again, it's it's just your, your your cognition has produced this explanation of the world to fit what how you thought things were before you even went into the analysis. Right. And it's we engage in this kind of things all the time. And then when you're when you're in sort of the midst of this kind of inquiry, you're also engaging in a social uh, psychological process, which is biased assimilation, which is our brains are really adept at ignoring information we don't like and absorbing information we do like and then painting two different pictures. Well, this 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 dovetails nicely into a discussion of what's going to happen in the Senate where you have 100 jurors, effectively. I mean, it's not... Uh, this is one of my pet peeves about how this is all being discussed. It is not really a criminal trial and they're not really jurors. 
right? In a jury trial, a criminal trial in a real courtroom, the jury is not allowed to see evidence before the case is even put on. It's jurors have to, could, you could never even get on the juror if you're saying the various things senators on both sides of this are saying. Absolutely not. You, yeah, right. you'd be rejected. <clears throat> so it's not, it's not really that. And this whole notion that, you know, Lindsey Graham came out and said, I'm going to vote uh, to acquit no matter what. There, I don't even really need to see anything. I don't need to hear any testimony. Forget it. And everyone's kind of criticizing him. I'll just go ahead and defend Lindsey Graham on this point. Uh, he has come to a bizarre conclusion about how he's going to vote. But the fact that he's come to a conclusion about how he's going to vote is actually no different than the vast majority of Democratic senators who have also come to a conclusion about how they're going to vote without having seen. And they had come to that conclusion before the inquiry had even started. Right. So, you know, OK, but. Uh, it it appears that in the Senate we're going to have again a party line vote on uh, both articles on the question of removal, and that means, of course, it's not really going to get anywhere close to removal because you need to get two thirds on one of the articles at least in order to remove the president. So we're not going to get there. Will we get any Republicans voting to to remove? Will to convict? Will we get any Democrats voting not to convict? I, I don't think any Republicans going to vote to convict. I think Susan Collins is going to feel bad about she's gonna it. She's going to Susan Collins it pretty hard. Yeah, she's just going to Susan Collins all over the place. Yeah. But I think she's she's not going to vote to convict. I don't think a single Republican does. Um, and I think potentially we get a Democrat. A Democrat will vote acquit. Acquit, yes. Um, so Joe Manchin, who is the, the one Democrat most often thought of as a, an acquittal vote, um, has said he's on the fence. And, and so I, I was actually encouraged to hear that, that, that he's. I have zero faith <clears throat> in Joe Manchin, just at zero, zero mm-hmm. faith. Where would you put Joe Manchin on a scale of one to Jefferson Van Drew? Huh. That's a fun scale. Yeah. Uh, probably Susan Collins. Okay. <laughs> I I I don't know I I don't know and I, I I'm I'm less interested in the mansion and the Democratic side of this actually than I am the the question of will there be a single Republican vote I think by the way the most likely Republican to vote uh, for one of these articles at least is Mitt Romney I think he's the most likely he's been the most outspoken against Trump's behavior That's true. in all of this. I, I wonder, you know, so so we sort of coming back to this, like, how is it that every single Republican seems to be sort of like of the same mind? I think there are plenty of smart uh, uh, Republicans who feel sort of a sense of duty to like do something about this that aren't. Mitt Romney might be a good example, but are so you, I think you have enough people who are either dumb and don't know what's happening or like or whatever. Enough people who have rationalized um a credible argument in their minds for what's happening and have made sense of the world that way, that they are strong arming the other people from a leadership standpoint uh, in terms of campaign contributions, in terms of leadership roles, in terms of committee assignments, in terms of like all the incentives that leadership builds into party caucuses. But I, I think there's enough of that, enough of those people that they're able to strong arm those folks that might vote to convict or might even vote to impeach. We'll see. Murkowski's a possibility, you know, Cory Gardner. I don't know. Um, 
I want to I want to tie this up by by coming back to we mentioned Justin Amash earlier. There was a, an article in the Washington Post this morning that there are some Democrats who are primarily primarily freshman Democrats, House Democrats, who are pushing to get Justin Amash as one of the House managers, uh, the people putting on the case in the Senate trial. Now I know I I know Tyler, uh, you and I I think agree on one big thing, and that is. You gotta, gotta, gotta have Adam Schiff as as one of, if not the House manager. I thought you were gonna say manager. you gotta have faith. You gotta, you gotta have uh, Adam Schiff as the lead. Oh, Adam Schiff! Oh I my mean, God, I he's have, a prosecutor to to be I have all such an impeachment crush on Adam Schiff. Oh, oh my goodness, he is giving white guys a good name again. Yes, thank you. Um, and so today, I mention all this because this week, uh, Nancy Pelosi will be making a decision about who will be the House managers. And there is this push to have Justin Amash. And I wonder what you think about that, because I love this idea. I think it's interesting um, because the whole the whole point of this, like the, why I think Republicans and like people like Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy, um, who, who I, I, I put them in the group of like have rationalized this to make it OK in their minds and believe the arguments they're making. Um, the one way they've sort of like strong armed people around them is that like this has we have to remain unified. We all have to stay together. If you don't like you're going to get blacklisted and you're just you're going to be dead to me. The whole point and they said from the beginning that like Nancy Pelosi promised that like we wouldn't move forward unless we had like some kind of bipartisan blah, 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 which is also just a made up argument. But that, that's how they painted this is that it's a partisan witch hunt and that it's just Democrats abusing the Constitution, weaponizing impeachment and the fact that there's not going to be any Republicans going to sort of add fuel to the fire for them. But I think having somebody like Amash at the head really um, uh, is going to douse a little bit of that fire for them. Yes. And Amash is no longer a Republican, but he's certainly not a Democrat. Right. He, He left the Republican Party, but he was a Republican fairly recently. And I think also just to add to everything you said, Amash while he is not a, a Democrat and not a Republican, he is a very conservative guy on policy grounds, right? And so one of the arguments that Republicans have made up around here is, oh, you just don't like Trump on policy grounds, and so you're weaponizing impeachment to use it against someone who you don't like their policies. Amash is a good counterweight to say, you know, hey, I don't agree with any of these Democrats, not a single one of these Democrats. I don't agree with Adam Schiff about any policy issue just about at all. But this isn't about those policy issues. This is about Article 2 of the Constitution and what it says. And the president has abused his authority. He's obstructed Congress. And that's Article 1. And, you know, look, and and Amash is someone who, while I and I'm sure you disagree with Amash on just about every policy issue out there, he is a thoughtful Republican. He's not a stupid guy like Devin Nunes, who is stupid. I want, De- uh, I'm sorry. How do you feel about <laughs> Devin Nunes? Devin Nunes and uh, now Jefferson Van Drew are stupid. Uh, Amash is a really thoughtful guy. He's a lawyer. He he has some ideas, some of them kind of kooky, about the Constitution. But no one doubts that he's a deeper kind of thinker. And there may be some in the Senate who are not going to necessarily be you know, convinced on this thing or that, but might make the political calculation that, look, okay, the president's not going to get removed here. I would probably vote for censure if that were put in front of me. So you know what? I'll vote for one of the articles 
you know, just and and that'll send the message. And I can still say to my base back home or whatever, look, you know, I, I'm not some crazy Republican. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I think I think it's an interesting strategy. Uh, I think that it's it, it is a nice counterbalance in in your words. I don't think it's going to matter. I, I think that the the majority is pretty razor thin. Uh, I mean, you've got a couple votes you can give up and still have Trump as president at the end of the day, but. I think it's so thin that I just don't see Republican leadership allowing this to happen. I don't think see Mitch McConnell allowing um, any Republican to to defect. Well, let me let me make one more argument about why it could matter. Let's say it doesn't move any votes in any way in the Senate. Does it at least move public opinion or public discussion of this, which is really the end game here? You know, what impact will this have on the 2020 election? Does it change what American voters think to see someone like Justin Amash up there making the case for this? I don't know that American voters are paying that close of attention to like that they would make that big of a distinction in their minds. I think the people who are already have their minds made up about Trump should be removed or Trump should not be removed. So I don't know if that's the case. I think in terms of the 2020 election, you know, there's just all these like think pieces out there that are a lot of hot garbage about like, oh, Nancy Pelosi really screwed the pooch on this one because she, you know, she couldn't get any Republicans. And the way she wrote the impeachment uh, articles and uh, was uh, made sure that they were going to, this is going to be a loss. And uh, Trump's base is going to be so motivated in 2020. Trump's base was going to be motivated in 2020, no matter what you did. If you didn't do anything, the president's going to say he's exonerated. If you impeach him and you don't convict, he's going to say he's exonerated. If you can, if you impeached him and he was convicted, I'm not sure he'd leave office and he'd still say he was exonerated. This is about getting Democrats excited from the 2020 election. And we're the people in between. I don't think there's going to be a lot of change there in terms of Amash or whatever. Um, but it's. With, without moving forward with any of this, all you do is piss off your base, you demoralize them, and you, you we're gonna, we'd have four more years of Trump guaranteed, I think. And again, Pelosi did a masterful job here of handling this from start to finish. Um, she was great. I don't know if you saw Perlmutter, Ed Perlmutter. Or, anyway, he was some member of Congress who was one of the people voting to get rid of Pelosi as House leader when Democrats won back the House just came out today or yesterday or something and said, you know what? I was wrong. Wow. Pelosi handled this better than anyone could possibly could. And I was wrong. And you don't see members of Congress uh, say that kind of thing very often. Uh, I'm looking at you, Seth Moulton. You owe somebody an apology. So just to wrap this up, man, you hate Seth Moulton I do. so much. Yeah. Um, to wrap this up, uh, does the House vote to impeach? Of course. Does the Senate vote to convict? No. Okay, so what what do you, what do you see happening in twenty twenty out of this then? Uh, I mean, I, I I don't know, but I think I do think there is there is more life to this. It the narrative of what happened will come to be set, and I think having a mosh there, I do think matters in terms of public opinion going forward. It just takes one arrow out of the quiver of Republicans who want to be able to say this is just Democrats, uh, you know, who hate Trump on policy. Try, attempting a coup and Justin Amash is not a coup guy he's not a guy who is going to agree with Democrats on policy one whit and to have him as part of the the leadership of pushing this forward I think is a better look for Democrats in the longer run a coup by the way that would we'd still have a Republican president right, right. that's not a very good right. coup Right. That's not how the coups work. Right. Um, that's another really dumb argument that's getting tossed. I, I just, I don't, 
I think that mo- a lot of Americans already have their minds made up. I think the people in, in, that don't have their minds made up are not paying that close of attention. Um, I think most of this is just filtered through people's party IDs. So yeah. I think they're pretty set in their ways. Okay. Speaking of party ID, let's take a break, but let's talk about the 2020 election when we come back. Okay. So we're back. Uh, Appeachment talk is done, right? We can talk about that when we come, probably come back from in uh, 2020. Um, and the year's almost over. This is mm-hmm. crazy. 2019 was insane. Um, let's talk about the 2020 election as we head into the new year. So uh, some big sort of mo- uh, news recently is that Kamala Harris is out, um, sort of, I think, surprisingly, um, abruptly, Uh and it feels like the field's really down to four major contenders at this point, although I think you want to maybe argue that a little bit later. So I want to take a little bit of time to talk maybe a little bit about like why Harris uh, fizzled out the way she did or faltered the way she did. I don't think that's an appropriate characterization, but it's certainly how it's been characterized in the media. Uh, and then talk about the path forward for the, um, for the remaining four leaders in the pack. Yeah, well, I think I think the, the the real answer to the question of why Kamala Harris faltered is because everyone was talking about why Kamala Harris faltered all the time, and that's how she faltered. The, it, the tr- treatment of her by the media was outrageous and terrible and unfair, and you know the the idea that somehow quote she ran a bad campaign or blah blah blah. It's all complete nonsense no they they, there are all these like huge exposés like basically writing obituaries for her campaign before it even ended and the double standard that all the female candidates have had to deal with from the media but especially kamala harris i think as um as a woman of color especially uh, and the criticism she was under and just the scrutiny that is not being given to the male candidates who have had plenty of mess ups and have had some messy campaigns and have had difficulty in their staff and their field offices and whatever does not get anywhere near the same coverage as Harris's campaign did. And so you want to know how we know you're right is show me the article about Beto's failed presidential campaign. Uh, that's a great point. Exactly. Right. Like his was a complete disaster from start to finish. He never went anywhere. He never even rose to the heights that she did you know, he was a complete fizzle from the start. And everyone at the start of his campaign thought he'd be some big player in this. But there's no articles in Politico or New York Times about, oh, Beto ran such a bad campaign. And look at all the chaos and everybody hates everybody. It's just the, the, the double standard between those two in particular is striking. Yeah, I don't think you can talk about um, the failure of the Harris campaign without talking about misogyny and racism in American mass media, like period. Okay. So, All right, so like let's move that. on to <laughs> the people who are, uh, so we've got uh, Biden, Sanders, Buttigieg, and Warren in no particular order who seem to be the four front runners at this point, although there's still plenty of people out there who are still campaigning. Um, let's maybe talk a little bit about where we are in the wake of Harris leaving and, and maybe who we see emerging as we get closer and closer to Iowa. Yeah, and I think the best way to do do that is to talk take them maybe one at a time. Maybe I'll take a couple and you'll take a couple. So wow. I'm going to start Ooh, by talking about spicy. Uncle Joe Biden. All right. Uh, Joe Biden 
is just cruising along enjoying himself. He's not, what's he doing? <laughs> I have no I, idea. He's got what that he's bus doing. that says malarkey on the side of it. <laughs> I think. Right, that's right. And he right. just yeah. We got. We, I think what struck me um, after Harris uh, left the the campaign was that immediately you saw Warren releasing ads that were talking about um, you know how how awful it is for this female candidate female candidate of color to be treated the way she was, which is fair, but also felt kind of pandering to supporters of Harris. So there was already this sort of this fight happening amongst the people left to like go after um, Harris supporters or try to carve out a new niche in the, in the electorate or whatever. Biden just like, like not, like, I don't even know if he's like giving a speech recently. I'm not sure he's doing, aware. Doing that, it. He's just in Harris his bus. Asked. Yeah. No malarkey. He just, <laughs> he's just ha- having a real good time. So uh, yeah. And Joe Biden is, if, if we had to pick a leader among these four leaders, he's, he's it. Certain in, in national polls. Absolutely. In, in national polls, he's, he's not doing uh, as well in the early states of uh, uh, Iowa and New Hampshire. Uh, but Every, he's doing quite well, actually, in, in South super, Carolina yeah. and Nevada and in Super Tuesday states and exactly. pretty much everywhere else. Um, and Biden um, continues to have a, a very big lead among black voters in particular, which is a big share of the Democratic primary electorate, especially in states like South Carolina and yeah. Super Tuesday states. Especially on Super Tuesday. That, I think that's <clears throat> and and those numbers haven't changed a lot, given uh, the attempts of a lot of candidates to reach out to African American voters, the numbers have stayed pretty solid. Even Harris was struggling to to really chip into Biden's numbers in a place like South Carolina. So that's looking real good for Uncle Joe down the line for right. sure. So if you're going to be any of these four, you'd probably want to be playing Joe Biden's hand right now. Yeah, I wouldn't Silver say you want to be it. Joe Biden, right? <laughs> I, I hope you wouldn't go that far. Yeah, but uh, sure. Okay, so speaking of people trying to bl- reach out to black voters, Pete Buttigieg. Oh, yeah, God. let's. T- <laughs> I'm going to let you talk about Pete Buttigieg. I can't uh, believe we're editors. No, I can't Tyler believe this and is I happening. don't like Pete Buttigieg. Oh my God, how is this? How it? How, ugh, I can't. I'm I'm struggling to form words because it just continues to infuriate me that the mayor of a town of a hundred thousand people in Indiana is polling ahead of like legitimate, serious, seasoned, veteran, female politicians. So in a lot of ways, it doesn't surprise me, but it infuriates me that, that this is the result we have in the Democratic Party after 2016. It, it blows my mind that, that this is that he's still there. I, it's bananas, as Tyler would say. N-A-S. And I was arguing with someone recently who's a big Pete supporter who, uh, a friend of yours, I think, actually, who was saying that, um, that you know, oh, you know, sure, Pete's inexperienced, but uh, Barack Obama didn't have very much experience. Let's look at the tape, okay? Number one, Barack Obama was a U.S. senator for a few years before he was president. But let's leave that aside. And the argument was made, oh, Barack Obama was only a state senator as recently as four years before he was elected president of the United States. True. Want to know how big Barack Obama's state Senate district was? More than twice as many people in Barack Obama's state Senate district than in South Bend, Indiana. Right. And he wins a statewide campaign in Illinois. Yeah. It's it's just it's it's leaps and bounds ahead of where Pete is politically. It is ridiculous. Uh, So Pete Buttigieg and and Pete Buttigieg is not just not that experienced. He's come out with some things that he says that are things 
inexperienced people say, like his ideas about the Supreme Court, like the stupid thing he said the other day about I'm going to be the only one on the debate stage who's not a millionaire, the guy who had this, you know, rather privileged upbringing that he did. He went to his his father teaches at one of the most elite schools in America. He went to one of the most elite high schools on the campus of that college where his father teaches. So like, shut up. And he's the mayor of an elite university town. Right. Any And anybody, I mean, anybody who looks at Pete, and so we get a lot of this in California too. They're like, oh, he's from the Midwest and he like must be like very rela- relatable. Anybody who thinks the mayor, somebody like Pete from and his upbringing from South Bend, Indiana is going to relate to Midwestern voters really needs to reconsider their perception of the world because that's Inaccurate. So you can feel the heat on Pete coming from us. Yeah, and, when it, and you, you've, you feel, you've seen a lot more heat, especially given his numbers in Iowa and New Hampshire from his competitors as well, is that he, the people are really trying to chip into him. I, I don't watch the debates, but like apparently there's a lot of back and forth with him specifically. You've seen a lot more ads coming out. And the thing is that I agree with Pete on a lot of his policy initiatives because they're um, – a lot of them are half measures. They're a little bit more practical about like instead of free college tuition, let's do let's do this instead, or instead of Medicare for all, let's do this instead. But it's just so many people in the Democratic electorate are learning the wrong lessons from 2016, and Pete embodies that, and he also just embodies so much of like what's like the gender dynamic specifically in this country that like this unseasoned that he he's a white male who is being judged based on his potential. And the especially the female candidates in the field are being based are being judged based on their experience, and this just Some this of highlights terms that. that are quite accomplished and really good candidates like Kamala Harris was. Yeah, quite, so it's just it, oh it really. So anyway, I I think for him, especially for a lot of voters who don't really know what's going on, because a lot of voters still don't know what's going on in the electorate, a lot of people don't have their mind made up. He's like this pleasant-looking white guy, and it doesn't really matter what else is around it. I'm not even sure that the fact that he's gay comes to a lot of voters' minds. I think that they're like, oh, the pleasant-looking young white man who, like, speaks Norwegian, I like him a lot. The f- fact that, like, in polling numbers, he's uh, often sort of, like, has the highest percentage of people saying that he's the most intelligent candidate in the field stacked up against, like, these incredibly intelligent people, like Cory Booker, who's also a Rhodes Scholar, like Elizabeth Warren, who taught at the friggin' school that he went to. I just, it, I, I can't, I, liter- I literally can't even with Mayor yeah. Pete. Yeah, uh, it's it really is uh, frustrating. And, um, you know, his support, his big uh, uh, weakness right now is his lack of support from black voters. I did see a poll recently. I think it might have been in South Carolina where he was getting like one percent finally, which was more than before right. of black voters in South Carolina. And his attempts to reach out have just been pathetic. And, and so just, deaf. yeah. And so just on a um, practical politics kind of standpoint, for those of you who are Democratic voters out there who are uh, thinking about electability, which we've talked about as something we really don't know what we're talking about. And voters on, don't, when voters say that uh, in polls, they don't know what they mean either. In fact, in people in the DNC don't know what that means. So. But in this case, it is a little bit problematic in an election where we really, really need a massive African-American voter turnout for the Democrats to nominate Pete Buttigieg. Yeah. So anyway, path forward. I think he probably does pretty well in places like Iowa and New Hampshire, like the, the whitest of white <clears throat> states you can find, just big bowls of sour cream sitting out there in, in the American Midwest and in, in New England. Spoiled or something. Uh, <laughs> if you leave it out for too long, it yeah. does spoil. Yeah. Um, 
also a pretty good metaphor for white America. Am I right? <laughs> I think he's going to do well there. I think Super Tuesday rolls around and he's going to struggle. Uh, he's going to come out of the gate strong. But by the way, we still have a lot of time till Iowa. I'm not sure his numbers are going to hold, but I think yeah. maybe he comes out of the gate strong, falters pretty early on after that. Yeah. Let's move on to Bernie Sanders. Okay. You want to take that or you want me to take you that? You go ahead. All right. I'm Jewish, so I'll grab that one. That's not what I meant, uh, but okay. <laughs> Bernie. Uh, so Bernie um, is different than all the others in that his numbers have just been steady. All right. Like they just... They, they started at a certain place. They've dropped a little bit from where he started, but not much. And he's just not dropping below a certain point, And he's not seeming to rise above a certain point. It feels like Bernie has this incredibly loyal um, fan base. And there's really no other way to characterize Bernie voters than a fan base. They're incredibly loyal. They're incredibly motivated. I think, again, he's going to really do really well in caucus states where sort of the more affluent members are can more easily participate in what is an incredibly undemocratic. I want to talk about caucuses. God, I hate caucuses. They're so stupid. Hmm. Anyway. Um, but, yeah, I think he hasn't been able to build on that support in the way that he was in 2016. And we're still we're still really far out. Right. There's still a lot of time left. But I, I think that that should be troubling for his campaign, that we're not building on the floor that we've already set. It's almost like maybe that's the ceiling. Yeah, Bernie does not seem to... He's got a high floor and a low ceiling. He, he doesn't seem to be able to break out of... Break above 20%, at least. Uh, and uh, he's not quite that high in national polling right now. Right. And, of course, he does well in New Hampshire polling, but he's... That's there, his, he's, he's practically like a pack his home of, state. You would, you would think he would be doing even better in a place like New right. Hampshire. And he's really sort of within the top two or three. Right. Well, Warren has cut into him there, but yeah, he's it, one place where he's doing perhaps a little better than I would expect, I'll admit, is in Nevada. He's doing a little bit better there than I would expect, but he's really not sort of breaking out in any way. And he's the kind of person who should have broken out at some point and at least be on par with Biden. Um, having Warren in the race everywhere is a problem for Bernie um, and because they're they're you know, both leaning on those very progressive uh, voters. Yeah. Speaking of Warren, yeah. uh, we can talk about talk about her. And then I think you want to talk about about your favorite candidate in a second. Yeah. Um, so we'll wrap this up pretty quickly. But um, Warren, it, it feels like, you know, had had these moments over the past year, past six months or so, where she would sort of spike in the polls and be getting a lot of good media coverage and then that would die away and then get more criticism for her her opponents i feel like she held up to that pretty well but now as we get closer and closer to especially these early states her numbers are probably look a little bit troubling to her campaign uh, compared to where they were a couple months ago and i think it has to do a lot with her um, going after the more progressive side of the party and competing with Sanders, especially for like being the the most liberal, de- the most democratic Democrat out there or whatever. Right. Um, and I think especially in a place like Iowa, New Hampshire, um, that's hurting her quite a bit. And in fact, a lot of the polling numbers in, a, in Iowa show that like her Medicare for all uh, policy plan specifically is turning a lot of voters off. And it feels like in some recent statements, she's already trying to backpedal a little bit from that. But um, that's sort of a hard. Once the toothpaste is out of the tube, it's pretty hard to get it back in. It sure is, and I, I I'm one of those who wish she would backtrack on Medicare for all. And I think that has been a big 
reason why she has dropped down from at one point, at one brief moment, she was leading in the polling averages nationally. She was ahead of Biden just for a blip in time. Uh, And she's pulled back from that. I think it's largely her, her, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, related to Medicare for all. And again, I want to come back to the misogyny piece, right? The, the distinction between how Warren's Medicare for All plan is treated and how Bernie's is treated seems rather bizarre, right? We don't see Bernie dropping down because suddenly people are having second thoughts about Medicare for All, but all of the fire is aimed at, at Yeah, Elizabeth and Warren actually Warren. like has like a plan to achieve that policy. Well, and that's part of the problem is that she has put some of the meat on the bones where Bernie hasn't. Right, and, the, and, and often campaigns are won on ideals and idealistic policies and not like pragmatic policy. 2016 is a good example of that. But I, I, I want to, I am not sold on this idea that, you know, I know it's in the polling numbers, right? So we should, like, it's in the data and the data speaks for itself. But I, I just don't believe that Democratic primary voters are paying that close attention to policy. And that I think they're picking up on other cues. And then again, rationalizing, sort of engaging in motivated reasoning um, to sort of reach a conclusion that makes sense in their brains. And I think it has to do with like that we have a female candidate compared to like these like pleasant looking white men. Um, Bernie's who, a pleasant looking white man. Uh, I was talking more about Biden and Buttigieg, but okay. um, wow, sick burn, man. Damn. <laughs> um, dude had a heart attack. You could be a little nice to him. Yeah. Jeez. Um, I, I think there's, there's other cues other shortcuts, heuristics that people are using to judge Warren and it's showing up in other manifestations in the data. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with you that generally people are not paying attention to the details of every little nook and cranny of her Medicare for all policy, but it started to get a lot of criticism and that was just enough for her to drop down from something like 25% nationally down to like the upper teens nationally, right? That's it's it's not that everybody's paying attention, but enough are paying attention. And it's not so much the policy details. It's how the policy details are being perceived and people, some number of people believing, I don't think she's electable because of that's it. That's true. But I think that that's compounded by misogynistic shortcuts that people use to make these decisions as well, right? So it's, yeah. it's that, yeah, she gets criticism from Biden's campaign or Buttigieg's campaign and even Sanders' campaign for her actual plan. Um, so that criticism, that, that, that those very specific criticisms are maybe sort of broadcast and heard or whatever, but then that's compounded by like, we're just kind of looking for a reason to not like the female candidate. Yeah. So speaking uh, of female candidates, yes, uh, we, we need to move on, but I know you want to talk about the, the, your dark horse candidate. Yes. Amy Klobuchar. Amy Klobuchar still has a path here. There is a, there is a way she could win this. And it involves doing well in Iowa, and there is some sign that she's picking up ground in Iowa. The question is whether she can pick up enough ground fast enough. She has a really good organization in Iowa, and a recent poll that just came out a couple days ago, I don't think it's a particularly reliable pollster, but a recent poll did have her at 10% in double digits in Iowa for the first time. Um, So I think that there is a path for Amy Klobuchar to get in this thing, mainly because if you look at the field, you know, of the top four we've just talked about, Biden, Bernie, Buttigieg, and Warren, um, you know, Amy, there is a lane there that is a little bit open for for Klobuchar, which is the moderate Biden sort of the 
party, but people who maybe A, want a female candidate and B, think Joe Biden is too old. And that's kind of the lane that she can fill if people want experience, steady hand, etc., but feel like Joe is just too old, too, you know, too much of a loose cannon, etc. So I think there is a path for Klobuchar and people shouldn't write her off yet. Maybe. I... I... I like Klobuchar a lot. I think she's fantastic. Um, I would love to see her as the nominee, but I, I think for that that could be bad for a lot of reasons that we saw in 2016, that she is a pro- policy pragmatist and likes to get into the weeds on policy and likes to have like like detailed, pragmatic plans to achieve those policy. And those things don't make good sound bites. And those things are hard to run a campaign on, those kind of ideas, because voters don't want to listen. And she's like a little vanilla, right? Like kind of meh um, as, a, as a candidate, as, uh, as, a, as a speaker. Um, she's not the kind of person that's going to sort of like bring, you know, an auditorium to their feet or whatever, right? Let's remember that Hillary Clinton did, did pretty well. She didn't she, yeah. win, but she did pretty well. Uh, Donald Trump is less popular than uh, uh, he was then. And let's just say that Amy Klobuchar has a lot of what people might have liked about Hillary Clinton without a lot of the long-term Hillary Clinton baggage. That's what I was going to say is that we can draw a lot of analogies to 2016 with Klobuchar and Clinton, I think, from policy standpoints, from just uh, sort of like political, um, the the philosophy of like being a policymaker. I think there's a lot of similarities there, and I like them both for the same reason. But I agree that um, the difference, what makes that not a very great analogy is the is the negativity that came along with Clinton is the long history in politics right. um, and the strong, the strong sort of like uh, misogynistic negativity that came with it because yeah. she's been in the spotlight. For and so I long. hear Amy Klobuchar doesn't even use email. She's not interested in email. She doesn't know. have a server. Right. She has no idea where Ukraine is. Terrified of Snapchat. Yeah. So, so I think we're good there. Okay. So what are we what are we doing now? We're we're. I want to take a little break. I want to come back. I want to have a nice little. Uh, you know, I'm I'm going to go visit my family uh, this holiday season, which I'm not looking forward to for various reasons. So I want to explore the Democratic nomination field in terms of possible holiday family dynamics. Okay. Okay, so we're back. Um, I want to close things out on a nice note because it is the holiday season. Whatever, I'm sure this is going to be nice, but whatever whatever <laughs> holidays you choose to uh, celebrate with with you and yours, we want to close things out on, on a nice note here. So I was thinking about my family dynamics as I, I brought this up a couple times. I'm obviously having a little bit of anxiety about it, and it got me thinking about well, like given the stereotypes that you see at like family get-togethers that you, you see them in all the movies and you probably have them in your own family what given those stereotypes and those roles who would that be in the democratic primary field so i want to want to throw out some ideas okay. here and i want to get a sense of, of who you think fits these roles in the primary okay are you ready for this yeah okay i want to start with uh with the the stereotypical like holiday dad right he's like not helping in the kitchen He's not, he's sitting in his recliner. He's got a beer open. He's watching the game. He's ignoring the kids who are running around. Mm-hmm. Just, just not just being dad. Yeah. Who, who is that? That's the, your front runner. That's, that's your Joe Biden right there. Yes, it is. Uh, he's wearing probably a pretty ugly Christmas sweater. Um, and you know, saying, 
a couple of inappropriate things, but his his heart's in the right place. He's from a different time, yeah. Right, so you excuse dad, right? Yeah, you, you kind of roll your eyes and let it go when it's when it's not quite on the mark. But you got his point, and his heart's in the right place. So that's that's Joe Biden. I agree with that um, one for sure. Uh, anyone out there that you would see as as mom? Oh, so so when I think of like a mom with the holidays, I think of like. <laughs> doing everything in the kitchen is just like stressed out is like screaming at people is cause like, you're just like, you're, she's on like, she's on a wire. Right. Hmm. Um, but also like not making any headway, just like just stressed out, anxious, trying to do everything at once, but not really sort of like, it's just like, there's always something more to do. She's never like getting ahead of the list that she created because she put out, she was too ambitious in that plan. Huh? So I think Bernie Sanders is mom really? at the holidays. Oh, yeah, I, just... I thought you were going. Uh, see, I was going to say more Elizabeth Warren until you went with the angry part of it, the angry stress. No, and I, th- I especially like I think about my mom with the holidays. She, like she gets like you just you leave mom alone. See, I thought of it as like when I think of mom, I think of like this is the person in the household who's got a plan for everything, right? She's 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 planned it all out. The turkey comes out at this time, and I've got to have. That uh, it's dish. a little more. Frantic, I think, in okay. a lot of households. Okay. Um, and also, let's break down some. Let's let's not st- let's not stay in the stereotypical gender roles, Larry. Okay. Uh, I want I want to go with. I just see Bernie Sanders as the one who's like just frantically running around, screaming at people because that's the way he talks. Okay. Um, trying to uh, trying to get, but not making any headway. There's like just like got all these tasks to do, and like nothing's coming out right, and dinner's going to be late, and the kids need to stop running through the kitchen and you need to get your hand, get your finger out of the potatoes and like slapping you with a wooden spoon. That's Bernie Sanders. Okay. See, I, when I thought of grandpa, I thought of Bernie Sanders. So I'm wondering who, who you would put in that grandpa kind of falling asleep too early. Uh, you know, but when he is awake, you know, saying kind of weird things that are kind of out there, who do you see as that? Uh, uh, I don't know. Cory Booker, maybe like, cause he's, <laughs> he's not doing much. Like he's, every once in a while he sort of says something that catches your attention, but you kind of forget about it pretty quickly. Uh, probably eating pretty healthy because the doctor really wants him to cut down a lot of the cholesterol. Right. So he's probably mm-hmm. eating a lot of veggies. We know mm-hmm. Cory Booker um, is a vegan because he talks about it as much as he possibly can. So I think maybe, maybe Booker fits that role for me a little hmm. bit. That's interesting. Okay. How about let's, let's dive every, every family has the, drunk racist uncle so i'm not sure we're going to find a racist uh figure in the democratic field necessarily but who is the kind of uh not politically correct um so like yeah so out like of control get, like getting figure. getting a little drunk like trying to pick some fights with the family right mm-hmm. like being a being an antagonist <clears throat> saying some like kind of conspiracy theory type stuff <laughs> i'm gonna go with gabbard i'm gonna go with tulsi oh okay. yeah tulsi gabbard's that person yeah me. yes i could i could totally see that and and definitely a lot of fights starting on the debate stage with with uh tulsi gabbard now we have one that that I just know we we already both agree on, and that is your older brother who just got home from his first semester in college. Took his first psych class. Really, really annoying, arrogant. Maybe took his first he knows political philosophy course. Like yeah. thinks he knows everything about everything. Right. And is so much smarter than anybody else in the room. Right. Yeah, it's Pete Buttigieg. Yeah. Oh my God. Like to a T. <laughs> so Pete Buttigieg is playing the same role in this segment that he was playing in the previous that segment. That one's easy peasy, yeah. Uh, okay, uh, so uh, every uh, thanks, uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas has also the um, 
free-spirited aunt, probably divorced recently, maybe or maybe not has kids ever. Definitely has uh, cats. Yeah, de- definitely has a lot of cats. Wears very bold, bright patterns in right. all her clothing. So I'm, now I'm a little worried because you're describing me. Uh-huh. Like I'm, I'm that. Like when I go to my family stuff, like I'm that uncle. Like I'm the uncle uh-huh. that like. This, he's like the weird, like liberal college professor who right. like wears loud clothing and like gives me books on feminism and stuff. So, mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, I'm a little worried you're describing. Okay, me. so who's the Tyler Hughes of the of the presidential field here? Oh, I think it's Marianne Williamson. Absolutely, I do. I really Absolutely. think it is, and I don't want to play any gender roles, but she just she fits that so well. Yeah. She is that person. She's yeah. like, like getting little, like getting a little wine drunk and just like you know going off on her like like all about spiritualism yeah. and yeah, oh, perfect. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the weird cousins that show up and are not well known. Nobody Don't, in the family really knows them all that you well. Have, yeah, you have these people that show up. Uh, you see them once, maybe once every couple of years, and you're like, I think that's my cousin. Yeah, I can't even Todd. remember what they do for I a living. I can't remember their names. I'm not even sure who their parents are. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. your aunt Ida's kids. Got yeah, it. that's Wayne okay. Wayne Messam and uh, Andrew Yang. That's okay. who those people are. Yes, <laughs> I, I got that. Uh, okay. Um, <clears throat> Then there's the non-family member the that that comes. Uh, how about uh, mom or dad's boss is invited, and these are the people who just prior to Christmas dinner have announced there's not going to be any bonuses this year. Yeah, so I was thinking of, <clears throat> excuse me, I was thinking of um, Christmas vacation. Sort of the the boss is like the villain, and cousin Eddie goes and gets him and brings him back. We should talk about our favorite holiday movies because that's pretty high up for me. Um, so, yeah. so Or maybe even like an Ebenezer Scrooge type person who maybe like, well, you know, the thing about Scrooge is though, he goes through this sort of like moral discovery and ends up being a good person. Anyway, I think the person you're describing, the person who like shows up and like gives you a Jelly of the Month uh, certificate uh, club thing instead of like a Christmas bonus is Bloomberg. It just has to be. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you have to go with either Bloomberg or Steyer here. Steyer's a little too uh, off on the left wing for for that kind of a role. And just side note, uh, Steyer with his term limit stuff, oh, my God, go go away. But, yeah, Bloomberg is definitely the guy who um, stop and frisk. You you can see him being the guy who canceled Christmas bonuses and just spent $100 million on his new not or whatever the hell right and also like ends up talking to dad a little too much because they they both say inappropriate things like like there's a they have a connection there for yeah. a moment right i think there could be a little bit of that yeah um i didn't i didn't classify warren as anything i don't know well or or klobuchar or uh julian castro didn't get in there either true uh, i think i think julian castro and elizabeth warren are that couple that show up that maybe maybe their aunt and uncle maybe they're they're cousins of yours maybe it's like a sibling and they're just like that couple who is like a little too perfect for you they're, they're the normal people who show up and are just but you're also like a little resentful because like mom and dad really like them more than you they probably make a little bit more money than you do their kids are super well behaved they like they look nice they're wearing like like maybe a collar shirt and like a v-neck sweater i think that for me that's castro and warren make up that couple and yeah. maybe I also kind of want to see them hook up a little bit. I wouldn't mind seeing that. <laughs> I can't think of a better way to, to wrap up our podcasting year than... Than imagining Julian Castro and Elizabeth Warren hooking up. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, that's that's where that's where we've gone. Happy we're, holidays! We're everybody. pushing the boundaries every day. So Tyler, Merry Christmas, Happy holidays, Happy Hanukkah. I know you're you've got both a tree and a menorah. Yeah, at home, a, a little interfaith celebration yeah. in in my apartment this year. Yes, for sure. Yeah. So Happy holidays, wishing you all the best. For oh, the happy year. holidays to you. Happy holidays to all of you out there. Thank you for joining us. Once again, uh, we wouldn't be doing this without you. We totally would be doing this without you. That's a lie. <laughs> but if you like what you hear, uh, you know, share it with a friend. Uh, if you don't like what you hear, share it with an enemy, and you can make them as miserable as you are. Uh, but we need you to spread the good word of the filibuster. If you have any questions for the filibuster, you can uh, email us at filibusterpod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on twitter.com at, at the underscore filibuster. I think that's what it is. We'll put those in the description. I want to thank our friend uh, David Dice for helping us with our logo. I want to thank you for tuning in, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.